Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 69, nice, and 70, which begin with the Mariner being a grabby Gus and end with Enola failing her swimming aptitude test. (laughs) So we kick off this week, Enola says that the boat is ugly, which is the cardinal sin in the Mariner's eyes. And he reaches down and grabs from her hands the green crayon, and he says, where did you get this? This confrontation was certainly inevitable. Mm-hmm. Kind of surprised it took so long to happen for him to discover the drawings and that she had his crayons. She explains that she found it down below. He goes on to say that the crayon is his. She doesn't touch anything that belongs to him. In the book... Things play out a little differently. There's a bit more physicality to it. After she says that the boat is ugly, it says, He picked her up. She almost flew out of his hands. She was so light. She weighed almost nothing. And he set her aside roughly, snatching the Crayola from her hand. He found a cloth and knelt and rubbed it at the drawings and rubbed. They didn't come off. I like in the book how he grabs her, picks her up, and pulls her away from the surface that she's drawing on. Like, he needs to separate her from that impromptu canvas as soon as possible so that she does not continue defacing it. That definitely goes along with what we talked about at the end of last week where he asks her what she's doing and she doesn't stop. She doesn't look up. She just says, decorating your boat because it's ugly. Mm. As opposed to the movie where she stops, looks up at him. So yeah, that tracks, that difference. Yeah, that makes sense. He's frustrated by his inability to wipe off the crayon in the book, so he wads up and tosses the cloth to his feet, and he holds up a scolding finger and says, you don't touch anything of mine. Like in the movie, it says, she looked up at him placidly. Her eyes were wide and deep blue. I drew it for you, (laughs) but it's a gift. Uh, Every time I get annoyed with Enola, especially about her like defacing his boat the way she does, I'm kind of on his side. Not at his reaction. It's extreme, but it's his home. Mm-hmm. How would you feel if a kid came over to your home and started drawing on the walls? Not okay. Yeah, you not would okay. feel not okay about that. That's literally what's happening to him. So I'm on his side. But then we get the moment that I talked about last week where Helen says, she doesn't know your rules. And that is going to keep coming up because he's got these rules and they're in his head he doesn't even know their rules yet mm-hmm. because he doesn't know what Enola's going to do. He's never had to consider them. Yeah. He's making them up on the spot, which again is fine and totally valid if you decide one day, you know what? I'm not okay with people touching me. Well, now that you have a rule and you have to communicate that rule and that's fine. 
you just got to communicate it. So he's making them up on the spot, but his reactions are just so extreme. You can be angry and upset, but even in the book, he picks her up and tosses her aside. Come on. I gave him credit in the book version for last week, him brushing her aside and oops, he knocked her over. Mm. I gave him credit for that. But nope, this one is he picked her up and tossed her aside. I'm so distracted by what I'm looking at here in the clip, namely the way Helen is perched on the box behind Enola with her hands on Enola's shoulders. She's like a gargoyle. Yes. Yeah. Looming over this little girl. Back to like the gargoyle golem reference (laughs) from a couple weeks ago. (laughs) She is there to protect. Yes. And what Enola does after the Mariner yells at her saying, this is my boat. I got it the way I like it. He says, you don't touch anything of mine. She says, I drew it for you. He says, you don't draw on anything. And she stands up and pushes past him. She doesn't go around. She like puts her shoulder into his face to push past him and storms away. Like I'm angry. Equally as angry as you are, adult. Yeah, this is the first time that he has gotten a rise out of her. She's been pretty laid back this whole time. And even her reaction, I feel, is relatively laid back. She is unhappy with his reaction, but I think her re-reaction is fine. And then it's revealed as she walked away that she has yet another crayon hidden in her waistband. And I expect that's not the only one she's got on her person. It's just her (laughs) next one. She doesn't seem to have developed much of a sense of ownership. Mm -hmm. Not sure how things were structured back in the atoll about communal property versus personal property. But here on the boat, yeah, she's not displaying any such understanding of these things belong to him. And you need to check in with him about that no she doesn't seem to understand that at all popping back into the book there is an added element of physicality where the mariner actually grabs enola by the arm not hard just to get her attention that's specified in the text and then it says and then trying to crack the child's placid countenance he said harshly this is my boat i keep it the way i like it if i wanted pictures drawn on my things i'd draw them myself to which enola replies maybe you don't draw as good as me Wow, I like the book so much more. (laughs) Okay, I have an extra copy that you can read yourself. No, I like it when you tell me about it. (laughs) The line where the Mariner talks about taking up space is addressed to Enola in the book, even though Enola is long gone by the time he says it out loud, pretty much to Helen. The book says, you take up space, he snarled at the child, and you slow me down. And it's then that Helen interjects by saying she's just a little girl. I like it how it is here in the movie with him scrubbing up the mask, sort of muttering to himself that you take up space, you're slowing me down. And Helen finds another crayon and she holds it out in her hand and she's got this look on her face like, seriously, who are the children in this situation? Right. Enola has a reason for behaving the way that she is. Yeah, she's like eight or nine. a child. She's doing things that children do. He is supposed to be an adult, and Mm. he's not acting like it. Being upset because your boat is being defaced is fine, but the way he's reacting, especially with trying to scrub it off, feels childish. 
something else I don't like about arguments in general. This goes for real life as well as as portrayed in the media. So they're having an argument about the boat being defaced. And this is a fine argument to have. It's a communication that needs to be happening. But then he goes and changes the premise of the argument into you take up space and you're slowing me down. Taking up space I'm okay with because it is tangential to how they are existing on the boat. Right. But you're slowing me down is a step too far for me. That's not what this argument is about. If you want to have that argument, fine, have it. But that is a separate issue that needs to be addressed separately. And I also don't think they're slowing him down. I think at that point, he's just looking for all of the ways that everything is awful. Yeah. People love to put things into lists. He wants to make his oppression feel so much more weighty. Right. He's justifying his reactions by adding sins to their list. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned earlier, his statement of you want to stay, you teach her, meaning the rules. He's making the rules up as these situations arise. Right. Because... Helen cannot teach Enola the rules until the Mariner takes some time to tell Helen what the rules are. And he's not telling anybody rules. Nope. He's bringing them up on the spot and then getting upset because they don't know him, even though he didn't take the effort to tell them what the rules are. Right. Back to what we said a few minutes ago, that he doesn't necessarily know the rules either, because mm -hmm. this is so new to him. Maybe he doesn't know that kids are apt to color on everything so therefore he can't set a rule saying don't color on stuff but there should have been a conversation like hey i am very very a loner so you need to stay outside of this bubble for me to continue to feel comfortable with you being here and so that could be extrapolated some various different ways by helen and you're probably still gonna run into problems because kids are kids and they don't know bubbles but you can still deal with those as they come up. At least there would be some kind of baseline. The Mariner's main problem is that he assumes that everybody just knows these rules without him having to say them. And when they don't know these rules inherently by osmosis, he gets upset with that. And it's unreasonable. And I think it's a problem that a lot of people have that they just assume because they know the rules that everybody just automatically should know everything they know, and they're dumb if they don't. Right, and that's definitely a trope in the real world. It is a real-life trope, usually gender-swapped, where a woman is upset and her significant other is like, why are you upset? And she says, well, you should know. <laughs> that's exactly what's going on here. They're supposed to be mind-readers, and that's not a thing. It's not a thing. If you are upset, if you want something to be a certain way, you have to say it out loud. I know that we are kind of harping on this idea of communication and, and rules, and you have to say things out loud. And unfortunately, this is going to keep coming up. Mm -hmm. This isn't the last time they have this problem. They don't learn anything from this problem. They just let it fester yeah. underneath the surface. It keeps happening, so we're, it's going to keep coming up. The Mariner does that thing he does, again, where the interaction is over, and he walks away, and we cut to a shot of him steering the boat. It is the bog-standard scene transition 
Oh, Bog is right. They do this all the time with the Trimoran. They show us so much sailboat porn. Mm-hmm. And it's nice. It's beautiful. But it's too much. It's too much. And it wastes time in this movie. When you're watching the movie as a whole, it doesn't feel so bad. But we have it broken down in such a way that when we look at two minutes, we're like, okay, how much material is actually in these two minutes? And when we get these big transition shots, it just sucks those seconds away. (laughs) And they do it all the time. Mm -hmm. I think it's an example of maybe they don't exactly know the best way to exit a scene. Like they've written, okay, this is the end of the conversation. All right, we need to show that time has passed somehow. So let's I do the can, same thing we did last time. Yeah, I can sympathize with because a lot of things that are available for filmmakers to show that time has passed, it's not necessarily available in this set piece. There's nobody else to bring in or out of the scene. Mm-hmm. There is very little location change that you can do you can move to a different part of the trimaran but it all looks the same Mm -hmm. so there just aren't that many options i do like the change though that they were able to do where the mariner is in a very different situation he's on his lounger yeah he's one of the side loungers yeah on one of the pontoons there yeah with his plant in his lap and munching on some leaves That was enough to show that time had passed. Yeah. So we find the Mariner sitting off by himself and Enola approaches and Helen calls from the side. Enola, what did I tell you? And Enola has decided that this is the time where she is going to stand up to this man that stole away the crayons that she found. And she says, you're not so tough. You know that? How many people have you killed? 10? 20? Is she trying to look tough herself by naming high numbers (laughs) like showing that if it were 10 or 20 that wouldn't phase her in the book it specifies that the time difference between this scene and last scene is not but five minutes (laughs) i like that it's very childlike her feelings about what happened didn't linger she wasn't much phased by it yep There she was, standing looking at him, bluer than blue eyes, staring unblinkingly at him from that carved mask face of hers. And she goes about it pretty much the same way, asking how many men he's killed. And he, of course, replies with, you talk a lot. And Enola offers that she talks a lot because he doesn't talk at all. And she repeats, how many? As if killing people is a metric of how tough someone is. I mean, it is a metric, (laughs) but the accuracy of that metric is debatable. And there's so many variables. Like, how many people have you killed one-on-one personally is a lot different than he helped to blow up a ship, Yep, which we saw, which had X number of people on it. Well, he killed them, but it wasn't personal. That was not a sign of toughness. That was a sign of cleverness and defensiveness. Through his actions in this film, the Mariner has led to the death of The drifter at the beginning of the film, who was shot by smokers, Mm -hmm. he led to the death of the man who attacked him with a knife underwater, grabbed the blade, directed it into the guy's stomach, so he's dead. As far as during the 
atoll fight. It's hard to say that the dude who got clotheslined or the dude who got whipped in the face with a ski pole or even the one who got kicked in the face when he tried to board the trimaran after jumping off the ski-doo that drifted into the gate. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of those dudes necessarily died, but there are definitely fatal casualties from the explosion of the refueler barge. I agree with those assessments. Of the deaths that we've seen, of the fatalities that we have seen from him so far, only one of them was like personally one-on-one. Exactly. All the others were set events in motion for it to happen, Mm -hmm. which he is responsible, but it's different. I I don't know. I've never killed anybody. (laughs) I do not know these things. On the outside, it feels different than literally stabbing somebody. The Mariner asks for specification because he's frustrated with her. He says, including little girls. I love this. In the book, it says Anola studied him, trying to figure out if he was kidding her or if it was a threat. I think it was both. (laughs) I think it was both. And that delights me ever so slightly. As much as I don't want to be delighted by the Mariner, the movie version of the Mariner, I'm a little bit delighted by this question. (laughs) So despite the possibility of that being a threat, she says, I'm not afraid of you. I told Helen you wouldn't be so ugly if you cut off some of that hair. I appreciate that assessment. Because it's true. (laughs) And he's had some really bad hair moments so far in this movie. Mm. So I appreciate that observation. I I love the way they handle this in the book. Because after she says, if you cut off some of that hair, it just says, that did it. Oh, oh, that was the line. That That was was the line. That was the bridge too far. Mm -hmm. You can insult my boat, but you can't insult my hair. Yep. Wow. Wow. And so he leaps up from his chair, he picks up Enola, and he gets her right in his face so he could say this stuff. He says, in fact, you talk all the time. It's like a storm when you're around. And Helen starts noticing, hey, what's going on? This is not good. And the Mariner straight up yeets Enola off the back of the boat. Just whoop, right out to the sea. Yeah. I really like... His line, it's like a storm when you're around. I think that says something about what's going on in his head. Uh Like he said in the book last week, the clutter of humanity. I think that gives us a little bit of insight on what this was like for him. This whole thing is like a storm. It's off-putting. It's dangerous to his well-being. It's unpredictable. (laughs) It's unpredictable. It's chaotic. But his picking her up to yell at her is certainly troublesome. It's just so overt. Mm-hmm. And this is, yeah, it's so purposeful. And I don't think he meant to kill her. Do you think he meant to kill her? Or do you think he thought she could swim and would rejoin them? I think that the Mariner was under the assumption that Enola could swim. Yeah. Because... As it's described later on in the movie, he's never met anybody on Waterworld who couldn't swim. Right. So why would he assume that Enola couldn't swim? I definitely think that that was a safe assumption. And the fact that she can't swim is bad. It's an anomaly. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It was still a bad move on his part to throw her over, but I don't think he meant to kill her. Mm. I don't think he 
was enacting his threats, multiple threats from previous scenes of dumping her overboard, leaving her behind. I don't think that's what this was. I think it was his version of a benign way to follow through on his threatening comments. Yeah. It's tricky, though, because anytime you have someone off of the boat, it's yeah. a dangerous situation. They're not just bobbing around. They are moving. Mm -hmm. And you see when she's thrown in, she immediately starts making distance from the boat. Yeah. The boat like, is immediately. moving. Immediately. The boat is moving. The sails are up. It yeah. is not in trawling mode. They are going somewhere. So his judgment here is entirely lacking. Entirely lacking. I love that Helen is switched on for this. Oh, yeah. But she still takes half a second to give him a big old slap in the face. Yeah. So there's a bit of a discretion when I'm listening versus when I'm looking at the subtitles because Helen rushes the Mariner. She's got her hand up, and as she arrives at the Mariner, she brings it down clear across his face. In the subtitles, it says that she calls him a butcher and then specifies that Enola can't swim, climbs past him, and runs towards the back of the boat. In the book, she more specifically says that he is a bastard and then specifies that Anola can't swim. So I'm thinking they didn't want to say bastard in the movie. I mean, I think they've said bastard elsewhere. I think they were looking for something different so that they're not just constantly using the same curses over and over again. That's true. It's easy for bastard to feel overused. Part of its sting is its rarity. Yeah. But butcher definitely creates some imagery for the situation. Right. It's a bit more specific to... Treating people like meat, disposing of them in a very utilitarian and uncaring way. Yes. You are a butcher. You have thrown this child into the ocean. She cannot swim. You have put her in a mortal situation. Yeah. You are a butcher. You have no caring. Not to say that butchers as a profession are uncaring people. No, the insult butcher carries that connotation, but the profession butcher... Does not. Yeah, a good butcher is hard to find. Yes. So her next statement that Enola can't swim, I'm going to bring it back around to these unspoken rules. Exactly. This is a rule that Helen has that Enola can't swim that the Mariner should have known about. Should have been part of the establishing conversation along with where are we going? When are we going to get there? What do you expect of us? As far as participation in the sailing, food, water, rules, boundaries, it all should have been in an initial conversation. And the fact that Anola can't swim is a big deal. Yeah, when he was talking about, I should throw you in my wake, that would have been a good time for Helen to pipe up and say that would be a death sentence for Anola because she can't swim. So it goes both ways. Nobody here is communicating effectively. <laughs> And here we find ourselves in a situation where a little girl is in mortal peril. Her mother figure is about to dive off the boat and the Mariner, he's going to be in an interesting situation where all of his problems are at a point where he can just leave them behind in his wake. He's going to reach an impasse as far as the choices that he has. 
going forward in this narrative. All right. So join us next week. We will see Helen audition for the cast of Baywatch. The Mariner will decide not to be a completely heartless monster, and the Skyboat will make another appearance. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 35. We'll see you next time. 